Our text this morning is drawn from Acts 5, and I invite you to turn with me there in the Pew Bible, page 1161, returning to our series on Acts, these early chapters. So by way of uh, recap, in chapter 4, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, had arrested the apostles Peter and John, but they ended up releasing them without basically with warning them not to preach in Jesus' name. The disciples went to the Lord in prayer. The Lord gave them assurance that they were doing the right thing. And then we had the Ananias and Sapphira incident in the early part of chapter 5 where that husband and wife conspired to lie against the Holy Spirit and they were literally struck dead by the Lord Jesus. And on the heels of that, we pick up our text in verse 12 of chapter 5. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, And all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple And the chief priests heard these words. They were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, 
held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about four hundred, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So far, our text in Acts 5. In response to the preaching of the gospel, we'll sing again from Psalm 10. The last three stanzas give the response of the Lord to the cries of David, and we'll see how that response fits in with how the Lord Jesus responds in Acts 5. Church of our Lord Jesus Christ, what would happen if your pastor, myself, and the vice chairman of consistory, Brother Bauman, what would happen if we were arrested by the police and told by the civil authorities that we must never preach or teach in the name of Jesus Christ ever again? As a member of the congregation, how would you take that? How would you feel about that? The authorities are serious. The threat of re-arrest of the leadership is very real, and of any who would support the leaders, that's very real. You could spend time in jail. There could be heavy fines. How would you react? I think it would be hard for us not to be nervous about what would happen next, not to be on edge, not to be a little bit afraid, wouldn't it? Well, that's the kind of situation that the, the new congregation in Jerusalem found itself in, in our text, very soon after the excitement of Pentecost and all those earlier conversions. You remember Pentecost Day. It had been an unforgettable event, right? the Holy Spirit coming down in power on the apostles and the other disciples, the speaking in tongues, the, the bold preaching, thousands converted. But now the authorities, the Jewish authorities, the council or the Sanhedrin, they stand fully opposed to the apostles and to Jesus who sent the apostles. 
They've already arrested two of the leaders, Peter and John, and warned them never to preach in the name of Jesus ever again with the implied threat that there would be heavy things to bear if they did. And then add to that situation the sobering account of what happened to Ananias and Sapphira, whom everybody else in the church thought were upstanding members of the congregation who fell dead at the feet of Peter for the sin of lying. Wouldn't that also add to your sense of nervousness and edginess? If it was a danger to confess Christ and fellowship, hang out with the apostles for fear of being arrested and thrown in jail, how much more dangerous for fear of ending up like Ananias and Sapphira. I mean, they just dropped dead. Peter has preached life in the name of Jesus, but two deaths have occurred at his feet, deaths of people who professed the name of Christ. That must have created an anxious chill among the believers, wouldn't you think? In fact, Luke tells us that that was the case just before the words of our text in Acts 5. He twice tells us that after the death of first Ananias and then Sapphira, he says, great fear came upon the whole church. Not just fear, but great fear, mega fear. So the church is on edge. Everybody's nervous. How then does the church move forward? How does the church regain its confidence and its joy in serving the Lord Jesus when they have, when they're facing both fear of of the Lord's direct punishment, as in Ananias and Sapphira, and as they have fear of the Sanhedrin's persecution? How do they go ahead and move? Well, on its own, the church cannot get past that. But the Lord and the King of new Israel can bring the church and does bring the church past it, renewing their strength, and He does it through the hand of His servants, the apostles. And so I bring you this word of the Lord. King Jesus emboldens His church to stand firm, and I'm going to add one word here, to what's in the bulletin, to stand firm under uncertainty and persecution. They face two things, uncertainty and persecution. We'll take a look at two matters, extraordinary power and futile oppression. Our text begins, 5 verse 12, now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Signs and wonders. This phrase has come up a few times in the book of Acts. It refers basically to the the miracles of healing. At least that's in the main part what it refers to. But notice how carefully Luke phrases what's going on here. He says that these signs and wonders, they took place by, or you could say through, the hands of the apostles. In other words, the apostles were instruments or agents. Just like when a teacher, and I hate to bring up 
school. I know the kids aren't really looking forward to going back, but soon you'll be back. And when a teacher sends a, a student to the principal's office with a note, right, the student does the work of carrying the message to the principal, but the person responsible for the note is the teacher. So here, it's likewise the apostles do the work. They are out there among the people, but the, the person responsible for the power to heal, well, that is somebody else. And who is that someone else? It's the ascended Lord Jesus. He, through the hands of His apostles, are doing these signs, is doing these signs and wonders. So, as you read through the book of Acts, you need to keep this in mind. You need to always see the invisible hand of King Jesus constantly at work through His apostles. Remember, it's He who commissioned those apostles. He sent them. So, when they're at work, it's Jesus at work through them. The whole book should be called the Acts, not of the apostles, but the Acts of the ascended Jesus Christ. So, the twelve apostles themselves are going strong. They appear to have none of this uncertainty I was speaking about concerning what happened to Ananias and Sapphira, and no fear of persecution. For despite the earlier arrest of Peter and John, they are there in the temple in Solomon's portico. They're openly proclaiming and preaching and teaching. They are bold, though they know they are disobeying the authorities." And the reason for their confidence is that incredible answer to their prayer that God gave. We saw that a couple of sermons ago, chapter 4, verse 31. The apostles, they were initially rattled when Peter and John were arrested. And then they went after that and gathered in a certain house, the twelve of them, to lay out their situation of oppression before the Father in heaven. They even prayed that the Lord would give them boldness and the ability to continue performing signs and wonders. And then God answered their prayer in a special way. Verse 31, when they had prayed, the place where they were gathered was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. So by the end of chapter 4, the twelve have fully regained their confidence, and they are strong, and they are unafraid, but the, the rest of the church, they had not been in that house. They had not participated in that prayer. So the rest of these thousands of new Christians are still very unsure in the wake of the arrest and now in the wake of Ananias and Sapphira. That comes out, this uncertainty in verse 12 of our text, the second sentence there, and verse 13. Luke tells us, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. The they refers to the apostles who are the subject in the first part of verse 12. So the apostles were in Solomon's portico in the temple, but then verse 13, none of the rest dared join them. But the people held them in high esteem. None of the rest. The rest of who? Well, the rest of the Christians, the rest of the believers, the apostles, they were bold. They had been emboldened by that earlier answer to prayer. They continued to stand in the temple to preach and teach to the many crowds of Jews who would naturally be coming there every day to worship at the temple. That's who's meant by the people, 
in verse 13, ordinary Jewish people who had not yet come to see Jesus as the Christ, so they kept preaching to those people. At this point, the crowds of ordinary Jews had no reason not to stop, no reason to think they would be persecuted, no reason to think they would end up like Ananias and Sapphira. They are just stopping as curious bystanders, drawn to the healing, drawn to the preaching. But it's different for those Jews who had earlier become Christians. At the end of chapter 2 and in chapter 3, we, we read that thousands became believers during those early weeks and months. Well, those people, they're now on edge. They used to gather all the time in the temple and fellowship with the apostles and be taught by the apostles, but now Luke tells us they hold themselves back. None of the rest dared to join the apostles. They were afraid, afraid of arrest, afraid of what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. Luke is describing the first crisis facing new Israel. Will their faith hold? Or will the, this fledgling church fall apart? So two things were going through the congregation, uncertainty and fear. Can you relate to that? Can you relate to feeling unsure of God's love and compassion for you? uncertain that He would receive you in kindness, fearful that you might be on the receiving end of His wrath, or maybe you've sometimes been afraid of getting in trouble with some human authority or some powerful people just for standing up in the open as a Christian. These are the uncertainties and fears that many believers have had over the thousands of years of history, the fears of many psalmists like David in Psalm 10 as we sang it, why do you stand far off, O Lord, arise? Why do you hide yourself in troubled days? Do you not hear it when the poor man cries? He felt as if God wasn't, wasn't hearing him and if, if he was alone in his crisis. But the Lord did hear David, and the Lord Jesus heard and saw and knew all those fears of the early believers in Acts as well. And he goes to work to put them to rest. Look what he does. For just as, as many believers are, are pulling back from fellowshipping with the apostles in the temple, and they're, they're filled with worry... King Jesus does this. He gives more grace. He gives more love, and He gives more healing power than before. Verse 14, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Well, that would certainly help build up your confidence, wouldn't it? If you were an existing Christian and you saw that the apostles kept preaching, and you saw that more people kept believing, not just a few, but thousands upon thousands, multitudes, that would begin to restore your confidence in Jesus Christ. Recent events haven't scared off these new converts for the Lord. 
powerfully has softened their hearts and has overcome whatever hesitations they may have had. So, so that's going to encourage you as an existing believer. But Jesus does still more. There are these conversions like never before, and then there are signs and wonders also like never before, extraordinary miracles that even Jesus Himself had not done while on the earth. Verse 15, so they carried, they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. With the implication that they would be healed when the shadow fell on them. Can you picture that? We read in the Gospels that when crowds followed after Jesus and would just touch the fringe of His cloak, they would be healed. But here, the power of Christ is so much pouring out of Peter, even more than it did earlier through Jesus, that even His shadow falling on someone brought healing. This is what Jesus told them about in John 14, verse 12, Truly I say to you, whoever believes in Me will also do the works that I do, and here it comes, and greater works than these will He do, because I am going to the Father. Greater works are done on earth because Jesus reigns in heaven. And verse 15, or 16 says, the crowds, they came to the apostles from the surrounding cities, and all who came were healed. Everybody. Do you see, brothers and sisters, what the Lord is doing here? In response to the doubts, the great doubts and great fear among His people, the Lord Jesus gives greater, extraordinary, powerful, gracious works to put those doubts to rest. He wants to reassure His people, I am not a petulant tyrant who just strikes down a man and a woman for no reason. I have good reason. And I'm not a king who doesn't care for my people. Look at all the lame walking around. Look at the diseased cured. Look at the demon-possessed set free. And if you doubt... The welcome you'll get when you go to this Christ in prayer, whether He would actually receive a sinner like you, well, it's sinners like you and like me that He came for. Look at all the, the new believers who have come to faith and repented of their sin and received forgiveness. Ananias and Sapphira's era, error was not to try and hide their sin from the Lord, or that was their error rather, but for everybody who, who doesn't hide their sin, for everybody who confesses their sin and seeks forgiveness, the door to Christ's throne room is wide open and you will absolutely be received in grace. He's not going to turn away contrite sinners. He came to heal. He came to help. He came to give life. So go, confess your sins and feel His grace flood your soul. 
as King Jesus brought many more to salvation and worked the healing signs and wonders, the faith of those earlier believers that would have been greatly strengthened and encouraged. And it would have been further emboldened by what the king did next in the courtroom of the Sanhedrin, where he lays bare for all to see. He, he just lays it out, the futility of their persecution, their oppression. For what Luke relates next in verse 17 to the end of the chapter is a showdown, a showdown between the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, 70 strong, you remember, led by the high priests and the Sadducees, between them and the 12 apostles commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a showdown which, if it wasn't so serious, would actually be in many parts rather comical. In fact, as we move along, we're going to catch glimpses of divine humor, really of God laughing at those who try to oppose Him. God laughs at them and actually makes a mockery of their opposition, their foolishness. It starts with the very arrest of the twelve apostles. The leaders of the Sanhedrin, says Luke, are very jealous of the apostles, just as they have been of Jesus. So there's, there's no high ground, there's no moral high ground, there's no uh, just cause for the arrest. It's just pure jealousy. And that's really the first laugh we get at the Sanhedrin's expense. We know the history of Luke's gospel, and there he tells us, and the other writers too, that the Sanhedrin had plotted to kill one man, to murder Jesus, get rid of his influence so that they could resume their hold on power and, and, and get rid of the all memory of Jesus Christ or Jesus of Nazareth. But only uh, weeks after they have murdered Jesus and thought they had gotten rid of the one, what happens? Up springs twelve apostles who are preaching more than Jesus did and doing greater works than Jesus did. It's like a game of whack-a-mole. You knock one down, and, and, and in this case, 12 more pop up. And the 12 are doing incredible things because the power of King Jesus is at work through them. So that's the first little laugh. They arrest the 12, and then, says Luke in verse 18, they put the 12 in the public prison. So they, they did this for all to see. They weren't uh, arresting them quietly like they had done to Jesus in the middle of the night. No, they arrest them publicly. They put them in the public jail. They want to make uh, a case, and they want this to be seen by the people. And yet, before the night is out, what happens? An angel sent by Jesus is, it comes to the prison and opens the doors and sets the prisoners free with a renewed command to go back to the temple and preach and teach the words of this life. Verse 20. In other words, the, the angel says, you must disobey the authorities and you must obey the authority of the true ruler of Israel, Jesus Christ. And when you reflect on what's happening here, there's a couple of things at least that make you smile. One, the Sadducees, who are the dominant force in the Sanhedrin and led by the chief, the, the high priest, 
the Sadducees, they didn't believe in certain things that the Pharisees did and that you and I believe in. For example, they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. I thought once you were dead, you were dead. They also did not believe that angels existed. So what, what happens here? The resurrected Jesus sends one of His very real angels to open the prison doors and none of the authorities can figure out what happened because these things don't exist. Jesus is gone. There are no angels. So there's an inside joke, so to speak. The joke is on the high priest and his followers. They are doing everything they can to resist King Jesus, but such resistance is futile. If Jesus wants the twelve out of prison, he just takes them out of prison. No problem. A second thing that we see here, this sending of the angel shows who really has the power and who does not. The Sanhedrin is caught flat-footed. They don't even have the power to keep 12 men locked up for a single night. You can see how the whole group of them are floundering, verses 22 through 26. They had made a public show of locking up the 12, but now those same 12 are back in the public eye. Where are they? They're right in the temple. Well, that is the the territory of the the priests, the high priest in particular. That's the the ground where the Sanhedrin has its greatest power. And those twelve are right there in the portico of Solomon teaching and preaching in the name of Jesus. What a public embarrassment for them. They had made a big deal out of putting the the same twelve in prison the day before, but here the next morning they're out there preaching. It's an embarrassment for the Jewish ruling authorities, but it is a public validation of the twelve apostles of Jesus. Those twelve are in the right. Those twelve are serving the true king of Israel. So, people are beginning to see, and especially the the Christians, those earlier Christians, they were beginning to see, they're watching from the wings they begin to see that the emperor has no clothes. You know that story. The Sanhedrin, in this case, would be the emperor. The Sanhedrin is strutting around. The members of the Sanhedrin strut around like the wicked of Psalm 10. As we sang, he proudly thinks, I shall forever stand, for I shall never with misfortune meet. There's nothing that can stop what I have planned. But the plans of the Sanhedrin fell apart overnight. The believers see this, and their confidence is growing. Despite the threats of the mighty and powerful in the land, they are no match for King Jesus, who really, truly is in charge. (coughs) When Jesus so chooses, He undoes their wicked ideas and plots in a moment. Just as Psalm 2 says, the Lord laughs and holds them in derision, holds the kings and the rulers of the earth in derision because they think they can overthrow the Lord and His anointed one. To God, that's a joke, you see. And these little laughs are part of the theme of Psalm 2. It's God's joke. And we are meant to take comfort in that. The twelve apostles 
are not only agents of the King's grace as they heal many, but even more they are agents of His authority in offering the, the gift of life to many. And those apostles, they, they even offer the gift of life. They hold it out. Who do they hold it out to? To the very people who threw them in jail. To the very enemies who hate them and who hate Jesus. They hold it out there in the courtroom of the Sanhedrin to the chief priests and the elders. After the high priest presents to the apostles the charge of their flagrant disobedience to their authority, Peter as spokesman for the twelve replies, very much like he did at the first trial, we must obey God rather than men. It's an ironclad principle. When there's competition between the commandments of human authorities and the commandment of God, when those things conflict, well, we go with God all day, every day. That's what Peter's saying here. But then he goes on to give actually the gospel. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging Him on a tree. God exalted Him at His right hand as leader, or you could translate author of life and Savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, as is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. Well, like we've seen with Peter before in his earlier sermons, he pulls no punches. He says to the chief priests, it's very true, you, the Jewish council, you really are guilty of condemning Jesus to death. His blood is on your heads. But here's the thing. God has made this man whom you crucified, the, the, he's, God has made Jesus the author of life. Savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So, you high priest Caiaphas, you chief priests along with him, you Sadducees, you elders and scribes and Pharisees who all along have expressed nothing but disregard and hatred for Jesus of Nazareth, I say to you, there is forgiveness for you too. If only you heed the call to repent and place your trust in Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ. Also you, His enemies, come and get life. Isn't that something? We might wonder sometimes, just how, how far does God's grace extend? How much does He have? How much patience does the Lord have with me and my sinful tendencies? How much patience does the Lord have with my straying son or daughter or grandson or granddaughter? How long will He keep going after that covenant child? Well, our text shows us the truth of Psalm 103, that well-known psalm that our God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Jesus Himself was confronted by these same leaders of the Sanhedrin for most of His three-year ministry. 
And repeatedly he, he taught them and he warned them and he showed them the way of salvation, but they would not listen. Instead, they conspired to kill him. But even now, as ascended king on heaven's throne, Jesus, through the apostles, repeatedly calls out to the very same rebellious leaders, his own murderers, the rebellious covenant children of Israel, and he urges them yet, turn back, turn back, receive forgiveness in life. Yes, you put me to death, but I will forgive you if only you repent and believe. Brothers and sisters, your Lord and Savior is more gracious and more patient and more persistent than we can imagine. So hang on to that fact and put your hope in the Lord Jesus Yes, it's true, the Lord's patience does have an end point somewhere, and judgment day is coming. But in the meanwhile, His capacity to chase after sinners in love, calling them back, that continues far and away longer than you and I would ever do. King Jesus has power and He has grace in unlimited quantity. The Sanhedrin has nothing. This whole incident shows the Jewish ruling council to be an empty vessel, a mere human authority that is in fact in rebellion against the highest authority, God, and has no divine support carrying it. What the Jewish leaders stand for, what they believe, the the religion that they hold to, it's vacuous. It's useless. Also, in this sense, the emperor has no clothes. They're, they're, They're just naked before God. They've got no gospel of any kind. There's no substance to their so called faith. Look at how they respond to Peter. The Sanhedrin are supposed to be upholders of God's law, but not only do they deny God's work in Jesus Christ, but Luke says, verse 33, that the leaders were enraged, and they wanted to kill the twelve apostles. In the very same way as they had set out to murder Jesus, they were now thinking about murdering the twelve. These are not agents of God. They are agents of Satan with a man-made religion that serves the purposes of evil. And even when their best man stands up, Gamaliel, who, by the way, was the teacher of Saul, who later became Paul, when Gamaliel stands up and puts forward the best reasoning among them, even then it's only a mere human wisdom that falls flat before the wisdom of God. For what does Gamaliel advise the body? He he compares the rise of Jesus to the rise of two previous rebel leaders and their followers who came to nothing in the end. So he advises, simply leave these men alone, let them be, and see what God will do. In the end, he says, you can't fight against God, so either 
these men will fall away because they are against God, or you will find yourselves on the wrong side of the Almighty, and you don't want to be there, he says. So, Gamaliel is saying, hold to neutral ground. Sounds like pious advice. Sounds like Gamaliel might even be somewhat sympathetic toward Jesus, but is he really? Before the end of our text, he will have also agreed with the rest of the Sanhedrin to whip the twelve apostles before releasing them. So there's not a lot of sympathy there. There really is no neutral ground. Either you're with the Lord, as He said in His earthly ministry, either you're with me or you're against me. There's no middle ground. And after all, this is a courtroom. These twelve are on trial. A courtroom is to seek justice, and yet there's no evidence presented and weighed. What about all those miraculous healings all throughout Jerusalem done by these twelve that nobody could deny? What about those, Sanhedrin? What about the eyewitness testimony of twelve men, and more could be found, saying that Jesus has risen from the dead and is alive? What about that? That should stand up in a court of law, twelve men. What about the miraculous escape from prison overnight, high priest? What do you make of that? Who did that? What about the incredible ministry on earth of Jesus Himself? The high priest is not interested. The chief priests are not interested. Gamaliel is not interested in facts or justice or truth. But much like Pontius Pilate, they seek a political solution to bring some kind of measure of peace and stability among the people and to retain their position of power. And to Gamaliel, the way forward was, let these men be. <coughs> Do you see, beloved, how lame and hollow that answer of Gamaliel is? The very leaders of the church, the Jewish covenant people, they don't pursue truth. They're not interested in discovering God's will in this matter. Their religion is to serve themselves, and God is just a figurehead. He's just a stamp on an envelope, and so their religion is utterly futile. Just like their attempt to oppress the true religion is also utterly useless. For by the end of the so-called trial, it is completely clear to all the Christians, in particular the Christians, that King Jesus is hard at work through these twelve, and nothing can stand in His way. If the King wants the twelve out of prison preaching in the temple, that's what happens, crystal clear. Grace is being poured out like never before, so the uncertainty of, of being received in wrath by God, it, it fades away, and the persecutors are shown to be truly powerless and morally bankrupt. No need to be afraid of the Sanhedrin. No need to be afraid of any government persecutors. All of that is not to say that Christians will never be physically harmed, or that persecutors never have the power to inflict pain or even death. 
In a short while, Luke will tell us how this very same Sanhedrin will stone Stephen to death. And here at the end of our text, the twelve are ordered to be beaten. Now, Luke doesn't elaborate on what that means, but we should understand this was no light thing to be beaten in a Jewish high court. Very likely, this, they would have received the standard Jewish flogging. A flogging is done by a whip. The standard whip was one made of calf leather, and it had three strands on it. And the person doing the whipping would stand on an elevated surface so he could have more momentum and more weight to his blows. And he would proceed to lay down 39 lashes on the person being punished. So each of the 12 would have gotten 39 blows with the whip. For every two on the back, one was to be struck on the chest. So front and back would have been cut and bleeding and painful. You could imagine the injuries and you could imagine the agony that these 12 would have felt after this flogging. This was not just a light thing. It was meant, these floggings were meant to urge the person being punished to never do what they had done to earn the punishment, never do that ever again. It was meant to make them afraid. But the twelve aren't afraid. They don't walk away from the flogging cowed or fearful. They don't walk away even hanging their heads in shame as if they had done something wrong and were guilty, nor did they wonder why King Jesus didn't help them out and prevent the flogging. They knew that their king could have done so. He had let them out of jail in the middle of the night by the hand of an angel. Just as certainly as he had done that and just as certainly as he had empowered the shadow of Peter to bring healing to the sick, they know Jesus could have prevented that whipping they know He's in, in control, so, so how is it? What frame of mind do they leave the whipping chamber then? Luke tells us they left the presence of the council rejoicing, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They left happy, bleeding, in pain, probably won't sleep for a week, but they're joyful. And why? Because they had been counted worthy. Who was counting them worthy to suffer? King Jesus was. He's in control. He organized that. They understood that the king had let them be whipped, all as part of his plan for his church, also for them as, as leaders, contributing to their sanctification and training as a way to bring glory to Himself and salvation to many more. It was a way certainly to strengthen the church, and they knew that they were honored in the eyes of the Messiah. Blessed are the persecuted. They remembered what Jesus had said, Matthew 5. So, brothers and sisters, whatever uncertainties you might have in your personal life, whatever doubts you might have about 
God's grace for you or for someone you love who's, been, who's walked away from God. Let those doubts fade away as you see the grace of the Lord poured out so lavishly in our text. And whatever fears you've got of being persecuted as a Christian, and they're developing in our, our country. Persecution of Christians in Canada is developing. Nevertheless, find your courage in your King because He still sits on this throne in heaven. He's still in full control, and He still laughs at the futile opposition of the puny kings and rulers of the earth, and He instead uses them as tools to do this and do that to further His salvation and bring life to His chosen ones. It's Jesus who is Messiah. It's Jesus who is King and Savior who gives us life everlasting. And it's our joy. It's our honor to serve this King. It's also our honor if He counts us so. It's our honor to suffer for Jesus just as He suffered for us. Amen.